Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to AskBillNye.com, your homepage, AskBillNye.com. Of course, you can check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. But today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Always great to be on the show. I do miss the days when we could do it together in the studio. Living in isolation is just not quite the same, but it could be worse. We have a guest here who puts her test subjects through isolation that's way worse than anything we've dealt with here. So maybe she'll help us put things in perspective a little. When you say worse, we'll get her take on this. Yes, or, or my maybe be- or better, or better. That's right. There's certain people I wouldn't mind. Am I right? Yes. Our guest today is Dr. Kim Binstead. She's a professor of information and computer science at the University of Hawaii, where she researches artificial intelligence, human-computer interfaces, and long-duration human space exploration, long-duration spaceflight. Dr. Kim Binstead, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Kim? Please do. Please do. I'm so happy to be here. You are very well known in our circles uh, for running the High Seas Project, which sounds like an ocean voyage, but it was something entirely different, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So what we do is we have a, a Mars habitat or something that's like a Mars habitat on the volcano of Mauna Loa, which has a very Mars-like geology. And we put crews in it for four to 12 months to basically do a dress rehearsal for going to Mars. And how many people in a crew? Usually six people to a crew. They volunteer for this. They compete for it. We get a lot of applications. <laughs> people fight for these missions. What happens when you lock them up for for six months? And this is because it's six months would be like the fastest you could get to Mars, right? If you were just punching. Right. Yeah, so a real Mars mission there and back is going to be about two and a half to three years. So we're just scratching the surface, but we figure if we see problems on these shorter missions up to 12 months, then they're the kinds of problems we'll definitely see on the longer missions. I just can imagine nothing but problems. First of all, what does the acronym stand for? Uh, high seas It's Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. And the connection to, to ocean voyaging was very deliberate. Uh, Hawaii's got a long tradition of, uh, of ocean voyaging, and we really wanted to tie that history in as well. And they were considering a lot of the same questions that we are now. You know, how do you pick your crew? What do you need to bring with you? Uh, what do you need to bring with you so when, when you get where you're going, you can live off the land? And uh, do we have the raw ingredients we need to make something new, or do we need to bring spares? Really, uh, the questions don't change all that much. How did you end up there? You're reading about you. Your PhD thesis was on a computer program that wrote puns. That's right, JAPE, Joke Analysis and Production Engine. You got to have a good acronym. That's just a rule. Right. So, so naturally, you would go from a pun making software program to locking people away on a volcano. It was a twisty path. 
okay. but I've I've always been interested in space exploration, and uh, the you know my particular topic in AI was what it was. Uh, but the interest has always been there. You know, I've applied to be an astronaut a dozen times now. Why um, haven't they taken you? That is an excellent question. When we get NASA on the phone, we'll uh, we'll ask them. Yeah. <laughs> Before we go back to the high seas mission, I just have to ask what has become of the pun making. AI, because as a dad, this sends shivers down my spine that <laughs> that my, my dad jokes might get taken over by uh, by an AI. Your daughters you know, uh, mentioned to me, Corey, they would they'd be okay with that. <laughs> there, there's so much aggressive eye rolling I would miss. Do you want to hear one of these? Yes. Okay, it, it's relevant. I promise. Uh, so, what do you call a Martian who drinks beer? Uh, this one I know. Am I allowed to say it if I know? Sure. That's uh, a. Uh, an alien, is that right? That is correct. Well done. <laughs> All right, so people volunteer to do this in hopes to, that they'll be selected to be astronauts to go to Mars or because they're just not getting along on the mainland and they want to live in a tent for a year. There's a bunch of motivations, but I would say a, a significant number of them want to be astronauts and they're hoping that this experience will will take them in that direction. Others just want to help contribute to uh, the space exploration effort. Some of them want to test themselves to see if they can do it. A lot of different motivations. So after a year, after six months, are people kind of going crazy? Are they at each other's throats? You know, so we, this isn't a reality show. We try to pick people who are going to do well under these circumstances. And for the most part, they do. But there are problems that we see uh, in almost every mission. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that although every crew has conflict, the source of that, of that conflict varies from crew to crew. So, you know, sometimes it'll be leadership followership issues. Sometimes it'll be personality clashes. Sometimes it'll be issues back home interfering and what, so on. What could it not, how could there not be personality clashes? There always are going to be, but what we've found is that if you pick crews and individuals who are resilient, that they're able to resolve those personality conflicts. So, well, so this is exactly the question I wanted to know is like, can you predict who's going to be resilient? Like, yeah. like can you anticipate these problems? You, you can't anticipate what the particular problem is going to be. I've tried really hard. And NASA would have loved it if we could, if we just said, look, if, as long as you don't have this kind of clash, there won't be any clashes. Uh, but you can predict who's going to be resilient. And you can also help people be resilient. You can train them on resiliency. Uh, you can uh, have mission support slash ground control. Uh, How do you train somebody to be resilient? Well, there's there's a whole bunch of different approaches. We've got a, a really solid uh, psych team, and they've got all sorts of different ideas. We've tested some software to help people uh, practice their resiliency skills, conflict resolution skills. Um, it's it's something that can be learned. Uh, conflict resolution seems like the highest priority going, and and there must be there's things they have to accomplish, right? Your crews have to accomplish every day. They have to go out. The reason you're on top of this volcano is because the terrain. I've been there. It's it is Mars-like. It's rusty, red, dust, the very, very, hardly any plant life, any place, right? That's right. It's one of the reasons we picked our site is it's at about 8,000 feet, so it's above any other plant life. It's uh, most of the plant life. It's above most of the animals, except the occasional spider. Very, and so very you, sparse. And people, the crews have to pass through an airlock. They have to wear a bunch of gear. That's right. It's not real life support systems, but it's meant to simulate the bulk and the awkwardness of a real spacesuit. And it's heavy. It's heavy. It's annoying. Restricts so your, restrict your vision. Do? How, how do, do most crews get through it fine, or do some people go crazy and take a knife to the tent and run away? We haven't had any knives to the tent. Uh, <laughs> we, Wait, we, how, many, how many of these missions have you done? Uh, we've uh, completed five of them. So how many years did that take? Did that take five years or more than that with all the planning and applying and back and forth? About seven years all in. Seven years, seven years. Yeah. yeah. We've had three different rounds of funding from NASA. And uh, how do people do? They come out okay? Are they happy to be home? Do they talk about food? They're happy to be home. Food is always a major topic. In fact, I see started out as a food study. We were looking at different food systems for uh, space exploration. Um, but even in the missions that aren't about food, it's just, it's a really important feature of human life, not just as a biological necessity, but socializing and, uh, you know, staying sane. Part of the way you show care for someone is you cook a meal for them. Um, 
and you enjoy the meal they cooked. So is it set up where one crewmate cooked for the other? We let the crews sort that out on their own, how they're going to divvy up the chores. Uh, But yeah, usually they cycle through it, take turns doing it. So if people were really going to go to Mars or go to someplace that would take six months, uh, isn't that pre-sorted out before they get in the ship? You mean the, the, the tasks or? Yeah, the chore wheel. Who's ever going to do the <laughs> chore wheel? It seems to me if I were a space agency sending people someplace, I would have the chore wheel tested to see if somebody really can wash dishes before you assign them to dishwashing. One of the lessons that we've learned from doing these missions is that uh, you can uh, sort out as much as you want ahead of time, but until you've tested it over a long duration, you don't know if it's going to work. So yeah, if if I were sending people to Mars, uh, one of the things I would do is I would send them to an analog first and see if their chore wheel and the other structures that you set up to support the crew are working. So let them spend a year on together in Hawaii and see how they do before you commit yourself to a, you know, a a $20 billion spaceship. Is there a limit to every, to any human? In other words, uh, after you do one year in Hawaii, are you, are you warred out where you couldn't go for one year in space or three years in space? Do you have any evidence of that? Not in this population. Astronauts are a very particular, uh, part of humanity and, uh, our crews, it, it, you need to find people who are this interesting combination of introverted and extroverted, right? They need to be introverted enough that they're not miserable, stuck in a small space for a long period of time without meeting new people, but they have to be extroverted enough that they can be in close quarters with other people and have these sort of conflicts and resolve them and work together and strategize and, and do all of that very intense interpersonal stuff that normally drives introverts crazy. So it's a, it's a, uh, interesting balance to strike. So what do you measure when you when you have people, a crew? Is it like, are there cameras everywhere and you... Uh... We don't have cameras everywhere for the a couple of reasons. One is that people behave differently when they're being recorded. That's just a fact. But also there's there's research ethics. You know, you, you're not supposed to collect things that aren't explicitly part of the study. Also, I would just assume that uh, that... that- they want privacy, that they, that if they feel like they're being monitored all the time, that that adds another st- layer of stress. Do you know, and that was a that was an element of our research, because we want to be able to monitor the crew. Um, but what we found with astronauts is if you send technology that records everything they do all of the time, um, that technology is really fragile. <laughs> it mysteriously breaks. Nobody knows why. Early in the missions, it's somehow it's, but it's the truth. And so uh, you want to find this, again, balance between getting the information you need to be able to support them and avoiding invading their privacy unnecessarily. So what's the information you need to support them? So uh, we were testing a lot of that. So, for example, we had one uh, subproject from uh, MSU, which was had these sociometric badges. So the crew would wear them and it would record the distance between two individuals uh, and the volume of their voices. So if they like were standing, a, like a, it'd be like a box on your chest, or what would it be? Thing. Yeah, like a little Star Trek pin kind of thing. Okay. Um, okay. And if they were standing nose to nose, and the volume of their voices was really high, they were probably having a fight. If two of them never came near each other, that might be a symptom as well. So we were testing things like that um, to see if we could get that kind of information we need. And then would they take this Star Trek pin off? Well, so here's the other thing: is our crews that their mission was to collect this data for us. And they took it really seriously. So, uh, yes, sometimes they would take it off. uh, But for the most part, we had really high compliance with our research, much more than you would expect in a normal human research study. So does any of this transfer from, let's say, the Navy's experience uh, on submarines or the Navy's experience in the Antarctic and stuff like that? Yeah, actually, the whole sort of underpinning of this whole field of research is based on um, what we call serendipitous analogs, so things that are like space just accidentally. So, yeah, submarines, Antarctica, even prisons to some extent, you can get a lot of information from them. But in the end, you know, because astronauts, again, are this very particular subset of the population, you kind of need to go with people who have a similar psychological profile to make sure you're really getting data. Okay, so you, you've done five rounds of this. Have you gotten better at it? I mean, do you do you start oh, yeah. to learn what works and what doesn't work and start figuring out how you put together a crew? Oh, definitely. Uh, but also we've learned uh, some 
just how to run these missions lessons as well. Uh, initially, we thought we were going to introduce uh, technological problems in order for the crew to solve them and, and to provide realistic stress levels. But what we've discovered is that they arise on their own naturally, and there's never any need to simulate them. What's the kind of problem you have? Uh, just, you know, the internet goes out, uh, you know, a piece of necessary piece of equipment breaks. You know, just all of these things just happen. Um, we haven't need to simulate any of them. The uh, the computer that's in charge of everything starts developing a weird homicidal tendency, that kind of thing? That kind of thing, exactly. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't let you do that. <laughs> so resilience is really the, the key uh, trait that we're looking for and training for. So am I resilient? Are you resilient? I've learned to be more resilient. That's one thing I think I've personally learned from these missions is... Okay, how? I, let's, I, we want some pointers. How do you become more resilient? Okay, so this one is this is very relevant to the situation we're in right now. An issue that came up on all of our missions is something that we call crew round disconnect, right? So that's when there's a communications issue between two teams, in this case, mission control and the crew. And because they don't have that normal interaction, you know, the hallway conversation, uh, having a beer, this sort of casual non-meeting conversations, uh, they can't resolve it in the way normal people do. Uh, so or the people issue- normally do. Let's presume they're normal-ish going in. I get you. Normal-ish. You know, there's yeah, always, yeah. there's back-channel ways to kind of deal with these, these issues in normal workplaces. Um, but on these space missions, there isn't. You have your single channel of communication. It's delayed by 20 minutes each direction, and you're stuck with it. And there's only uh, six of you, and you got to deal. And you are an echo chamber. The crews, you know, they... Those guys they see, at Mission Control suck. You're right. They really suck. Yeah, I hate them. Yeah, and then, exactly yeah, okay. that. That is basically a recording of <laughs> a meeting halfway through each of these missions. And, Although and I think that would also be good for camaraderie, but they're, they're, they're you know, one team against the other team. It is exactly what they're doing, is they're building an out group. This is what people do. Uh, And similarly, ground at the same time is like, why are they being such prima donnas? I just want them to do this one thing. It'll take five minutes. So that always comes up. So what we've learned to do is to recognize those red flags. I mean, almost those exact phrases that you said there. Uh, And put up a a yellow flag. So anyone on the crew or on ground can say, hold on. I think we're in a crew ground disconnect moment and then crew everyone's disconnect. job crew ground disconnect cgd that's that's our phrase what can i say we had to call it something i like um, it no it's great <laughs> Corey and, and i do it kind of every show yeah. pretty much. so then what we do is we step back and we say okay we need to address the crew ground disconnect before we go back to whatever the problem was we were trying that to simple solve simple thing would they just do that would they just open that window or whatever it is right exactly so and, and we find that that helps how long does that take, a crew ground disconnect resolution? A day, a week, a minute? Um, it can be really fast. It can be just simply saying, hey, wait a second, we've got this problem. And everyone goes, oh, oh, yeah, you're right. And then they kind of re-engage in a different mood. Um, but, you know, sometimes it gets really entrenched. Um, and we can, we've had situations where we've actually had to change out uh, people on the ground so that they weren't involved anymore in this particular uh, issue um, because they just weren't able to get over the hump of this problem. The ground control people you had to replace. Yeah, we can't replace the crew. (laughs) I was going to ask, yeah. Although sometimes what the crew would do is they would change the point person on that particular issue, and that would help. Stick around for more science rules after this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. 
Science Rules is back. So you were starting to tell us about sort of how to take lessons from resilience into our own lives, which I think is of interest to a lot of people right now with so many of us in isolation. I don't really have the option of swapping out people in the mission control of my life. How do I become more resilient based on the things you've learned? You know, a lot of this is going to, okay, one of the, one of the problems with analog research is when we come away with our lessons learned, people kind of look at it and go, well, duh. Um, so a lot of these are going to be well duh moments, but it's hard earned. So one, take it easy on yourself. Uh, recognize that you're in a stressful situation uh, and, and take that seriously. Two, uh, have a list of uh, strategies for taking care of yourself. It depends on what you prefer. You know, it's the usual set of things, you know, stepping away from your work, getting exercise, uh, talking it over with someone who's not involved, you know, all of those things that are not surprising. Um, but here's something that we did learn uh, from one crew in particular, and then we applied it to later crews, is treat those things as mission tasks. Any of those things that, that, help, with, uh, that help you get to a better place, they're not side tasks. They go on your to-do list for the day. Listen to the, your favorite music or what have you. Right. Put it on your list and do it and check it off your list. And the crews um, as a group in there, they would have their morning meeting over breakfast and they would say, okay, well, what are we doing today? They would have their list and what are we doing for resilience today? Okay. We're going to have a game night. And they took them just as seriously as they took fixing the generator. There was one not real task that we got all the missions to do, which was to shelter from uh, a radiation surge. This would be a corona mass ejection on the sun and you're on the surface of Mars and you got to do something. Exactly. So the, the thing that was kind of fun about this is it was a task that built up over several weeks. So we'd have them um, mapping out the lava tubes in the, in the area. The lava tubes are a feature on Mauna Loa. Have you, did you get to see the lava tubes when you were there? I've, I've walked in lava tubes, yeah, but this would be 25 years ago, yeah. They're, they're pretty amazing features. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what we'd have our crew do is map them out and then evaluate them as uh, possible shelters. Oh. Uh, so that would take several weeks. And then we would say, okay, you need to prepare to evacuate and shelter. And then they would do it. They would evacuate and shelter in the lava tubes. It was How long would you have to shelter from a coronal mass? Three hours, uh, 13 hours, 23 hours? We wouldn't tell them in advance. We'd just say we'd have to wait until they get the signal to come back. But we'd usually make put them there for um, most of a day. So, Bill, you know, sp speaking of things that yes. can happen in space, yes. um, this is a call-in show. We have a caller, which relates to things that can happen in space on a long-duration space let's, mission. Let's uh, roll that digital recording. Hi, Bill. So, what's the possibility of long-term space exploration? How would that affect missions where, like, a human's lifespan is not enough to get to the next location? Would we have a kid in space? How would, how would that work? You know, I, I, I've, I've thought about this a, for a bit, and I have to say my main concern is with Generation 2. Like, their parents trained for this, fought for this, uh, are probably fairly extreme people in terms of their experience and education and so on. Uh, generation two, there's going to be a bit of a regression to the mean. They didn't buy sign into up this. For this yeah. They didn't sign up for this. <laughs> They're going to be miserable. <laughs> I, I have a tween and a, a teenage daughter. And so I just imagine this moment of like, I didn't sign up to be an astronaut. I didn't ask to be on this ship. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> So, by the way, on these missions, uh, there's crews of men and women. I mean, one would expect humans, men and women, commonly have sex. Is there sex on these missions? Um, there has been, yes. Uh, no, but one thing I'd like to point out, this is actually pointed out to me by an astronaut, uh, and we have to point out to NASA all the time, which is there's no way to remove sex from the equation. Having single gender crews does not remove sex from the equation. Having married crews does not remove sex from the equation. Um, anytime you have a, a mission long enough to, to get past the stoic phase, human sexual interest is going to be a factor. How long is a stoic phase? It depends to some extent on the astronaut, but I would say the, the maximum length of the stoic phase is probably around four months. And it's again, it's not, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's all sorts of different sources of conflict. Uh, sex can be a source of conflict, but it can also be, be the opposite. Uh, it can be a way of uh, dealing with the stresses of the mission. So it's, it's not it's not just a negative. 
Yeah. So are, th- so are there different phases that you see people go through? Like there's a certain way that people are for the first few months and then there's a, a way they are after the, I mean, it sounds like maybe after the four month mark or something like that, that there's like a, there's sort of a long duration st- stage of psychology that people go into. Well, right. That's pretty much, that's, that's what we're looking for. So uh, one of the things, one of our hypotheses was that we would see a third quarter effect, which is something that comes up on Antarctic missions. So the idea there is that the first quarter of the mission, you're really excited to get started. Uh, the second quarter, you're kind of getting into your groove, coming up to the halfway point. The fourth quarter, you're wrapping things up and eager to get home. But in the third quarter, third quarter is a bit of a bummer. Um, you're, you've been there a long time and you're not out yet. Um, and uh, we didn't really see that. There was a little bit of it. And I think the reason is, again, we, we pick from a very particular population. They're not just human subjects. They're also scientists, researchers, engineers. They've read these papers, too. They've heard of the third quarter effect, and they're determined to beat it. Hmm. So, I am not going to have conflict. Oh, one thing you might be interested in is uh, microstimuli. So this is, this is a sign that the stoic phase is breaking down, uh, which is when the little things that your crewmates do become impossible, to tolerate. Oh, this is the the lip smacking, sniffling, well, that, that sort of thing. the sponge in the sink for crying. Oh, yeah. How could they? How yeah. could they? Yeah. I think, that. and then I think you know why. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know why I don't like the sponge in the sink or whatever the flip it is. All right. So, how much have you learned? Like, have you been able to modify people's behavior from, say, the first crew? To the fifth crew, have you been able to make the fifth crew do better than the first? Yeah, I think, and it, it some of it is uh, crew selection, but not as much as you might think. Um, I think more of it. So there's a lot of these issues uh, where forewarned is forearmed. So we, I mentioned that with the third quarter effect. If you if you know it's coming, you're going to go into it better equipped to deal with it. So a lot of these issues, the microstimuli. If you're able to recognize that uh, it probably isn't the way they're chewing their cereal, it's your brain reacting very normally to uh, the situation, then you're able to kind of take it with a grain of salt and back off from it a bit. So we've learned a lot of those things. But I think one of the biggest outcomes of our missions is to help NASA take the human part of the equation seriously. And I, I don't mean to say that they weren't taking it seriously before, but there was this attitude, you know, our astronauts are professionals, we don't need to worry about sex. Our astronauts are professionals, they're stoic, we don't need to worry about um, them getting irritated with each other. You're a computer scientist, right? You're an artificial intelligentsier. How did you end up doing this? So I, I need to back up a bit. Uh, my uh, PhD was in artificial intelligence at the University of Edinburgh, and that department was actually not part of computer science. It came out of uh, the School of Epistemology. So What's epistemology? Philosophy? It's the study of knowledge, yeah. Study, study of, of yeah. knowledge. Uh, and it had much closer ties to cognitive science. So really, my roots are more in the sort of human cognition side of things than you might expect from a computer scientist. Okay, the study of knowledge. I know that sounds, that's a fine phrase. What do we study when we study knowledge? We try to gain knowledge about knowledge? Right, exactly. B- Billy, you're getting deep. <laughs> no, or getting very shallow. Is it is it the same as what I call formal skepticism? Like, how do you evaluate evidence and claims? Or That's how do you really part know of it. something? But it sounds Absolutely. like it's a much bigger idea than that. Well, you know, it, AI grew out of it quite naturally because some of the questions that are the founding questions of AI come out of the study of knowledge. So what does it mean to know something? How do we encode knowledge in our brains? Are there different ways of encoding knowledge? Um, how can we manipulate our knowledge to uh, produce new knowledge? Uh, how do we learn? All of those kinds of questions. So how do you get a machine to learn, for example? How do you get a machine to learn? How do you get a machine to tell jokes? Okay, so if you have a group of humans on Mars, on a Mars base, and they're hanging out there for a year, how much do you need a machine working with them or helping with them? How do you get those two sides to work together? So I believe that's one of the things that you've been studying, right? Yeah, AI is going to be a big part of this. Like, you're going to need – so. the astronauts, they are uh, very multi-skilled people. Uh, they've trained in a lot of things, uh, but they trained in a lot of things, you know, two, three years ago. 
so they're going to need to be able to one quickly retrain in things. If you, you know your medical doctor suddenly has to remove a remove an appendix, and they trained on that back in med school and have never had to perform it, they're going to need to learn that very quickly. And also they're going to need to have um, help because of the high latency, the, the slow communication between uh, Mars and Earth, which can take you know up to about 25 minutes each way. They're not going. You're not going to be able to have a remote surgeon on Earth perform the procedure. So that necessarily means that uh, AIs, expert systems, um, those kinds of, uh, of knowledge aids are going to play a big role on these long missions. Have you had real desperate situations? Not artificial, get in the cave, not just a broken generator, but if somebody had appendicitis, have you had situations like that in these simulations? It, um, if you don't mind, let me tell a tale from a simulation that I was in. Don't mind. We'd love it. I'd spent four months uh, in a similar kind of mission up in the Canadian high Arctic, up on Devon Island. And we were genuinely isolated there. Uh, to It was a half-hour plane ride to get to the nearest tiny village uh, and much longer to get anything close to a well-equipped hospital. So genuinely isolated. And during this uh, mission, we had a couple things come up. One is uh, someone got a toothache. And that might not seem like much, but when you're a month into a four-month-long mission and you get a toothache, are you going to have to evacuate for this? Could be infection, could be very, it's very painful. Um, So that was uh, one issue. In the end, uh, we were lucky it went away, but we were very, very close to evacuating someone which would have been hard. And then there was me. So we're genuinely isolated. Uh, The thaw comes after our first couple of months there. And I'm out doing something that I've done at this point a hundred times, getting data from various sensors. And I walk across a patch of ground. I've walked across many times. And I immediately- wearing a simulated spacesuit? Wearing a simulated spacesuit. It's cold, but not quite as cold as it has been. Exactly. You walk across this patch of ground and- immediately sink in up to my hips. And uh, being an idiot and having forgotten what I learned from the cartoons of my youth, I start to try and climb out. You, I push down with my foot um, and my foot would, uh, I would go up six inches and my foot would go down a foot. You know, it, it just um, counterproductive. I've seen, this in, I've seen this happen in the movies, but uh, I'm not sure I've ever heard about somebody actually in this situation. It is so real. And then, of course, one of my crewmates being a gentleman immediately walks in after me. So now we're both stuck. And uh, a third crewmate, luckily, uh, did not follow suit. Um, but it took us a very long time to get out. It took hours to get out. And What's it involved... the trick? Is there a trick? Yeah. So uh, he put down a tarp. So this produced um, a, a kind of a surface on top of the mud. Um, and then just very gradually, very slowly and gradually uh, pulled us up onto this tarp. I had to get out of the suit. I died on Mars. So the suit was left behind. The boots were recovered months later. <laughs> uh, it was It was quite something. And you know, I'm there up to my waist and I'm thinking about the polar bears that, that live in the area. And I'm, you know, so thinking about I'm not my kidding. Options. Is did we learn that you should take a rope to Mars? You, you're going to need a whole bunch of parts and pieces. You know what I mean? Like, it, the, the random stuff that we use for random things. Yeah, I feel like that was sort of the Apollo 13 lesson is, is that, uh, you know, having some PVC pipe and duct tape and, and random hoses, you never know when that's going to come in handy. We're talking about things that are unanticipated on very long space missions. And this, uh, Corey, for me, takes us to a voicemail. Let's roll that digital recording. Uh, Hello, my name is Isabella. I am 15 years old and I live in Southern California. My question to you is how can AI be useful for more lengthy space expeditions? And what are some ways that AI is tested for such applications? Thank you. So we talked a little bit about having uh, AI as expert aids for astronauts uh, earlier, so I won't go there again. Um, But another big way AI is going to help is helping astronauts explore the surface. So you have uh, rovers that go out first to explore an area uh, for a couple reasons. One is it might be dangerous, but also you don't want to forward contaminate, right? If you're looking for life, you don't want to bring it on yeah, you want to protect the planet, planetary wanna, protection. Yeah, Exactly. So AI is going to be really important in planetary protection, allowing us to explore much further uh, than we would otherwise. And also as uh, field assistants. So you can imagine your astronaut is out there uh, trying to 
uh, identify an interesting rock and bring it back, having a uh, robot with them who, which can help in these tasks could be very useful. Let me, let me give you an example that I saw. I used to work at NASA Ames, and uh, the machine learning lab there had a system which, okay. NASA Ames is near San Francisco, near the big right. blimp hangar there, yeah. Exactly. So what they had found by looking at, at accident reports is that uh, when there's major damage to an airplane, we sometimes forget that um, NASA also does airplane research. and so uh, Aeronautics, yeah. So they found that you can have major damage to a plane. It loses a tail. It loses a wing. And it's still technically flyable. The problem is that the pilot needs to learn how to fly this very different machine before you hit the ground. And that's not enough time to do that. Uh, so what they did is they took a neural network. So this is a, a AI technology that's really good at learning. Uh, and they put it in between the flight controls uh, and the surfaces. And it was able to learn extraordinarily quickly how to change the uh, inputs in order to get the outputs that the pilot was expecting. Oh, and wow. I tested this in a, in a simulator, uh, a 747 simulator, I think it was. And I'm flying along and the simulator takes the tail off the plane. And all I felt was a bit of a wobble and then was able to fly normally after a few seconds. It was really quite incredible. So similar systems could be really important for Mars. You have artificial intelligence that's doing that sort of task, that's sort of, how to say, mechanical task. But then there's this other thing about running sort of the big picture of your day-to-day -day life. And along this line, I would like to listen to another voicemail. Hi, Bill. My name is David Hunter. In our day-to-day -day lives today, how can we differentiate between when people are talking about AI in terms of artificial intelligence and AI with reference to machine learning? And how will these two inventions prioritize and simplify our process of reaching out into the stars? So one thing I've noticed uh, with people with expertise in any given area is they tend to be less optimistic than uh, other people about uh, advances in their area. And I think that applies in AI. Uh, I think it's going to be a really long time before you're going to have a HAL that you can interact with as if it were a person uh, and find HAL that HAL being the character from uh, 2001, heuristic exactly. algorithmic learning or something like that. Exactly. HAL. It was the letters in the alphabet before IBM. Right, right, exactly. So I don't think you're going to have a full AI, like a full, fully capable human level uh, intelligent system uh, for the foreseeable future. However... Um, there are sort of lesser AIs, we usually call them expert systems, that uh, have special skills in particular areas. And I think those are going to be very useful. But one of the challenges of AI is that it really only gets interesting when it gets complicated, if you see what I mean. And when it gets complicated, it gets harder to predict. And NASA really likes predictability. Science Rules will be right back. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You're listening to Science Rules. So let me ask you this. You also, I cannot help but notice, have a, some background in improvisational comedy. How thoroughly are crews tested for sense of humor? Okay, so humor is uh, this multi-pronged tool, right? It's, it's excellent for coping strategies. Um, it can really uh, reduce friction within a group, but it's a double-edged sword. It's, so it can also, we talked about in-groups and out-groups later, um, humor is really good at cohering an in-group. And defining you have the context of the algorithm. You have you jargon. Have you have uh, references from five years ago that everybody laughs at. We get that. We get that in our crews a lot. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say that we, humor is sort of part of what you're looking for in the um, sort of general personal skill sets of, of crew members going in. I wouldn't say we evaluate, give them a humor test or anything like that, uh, but it's certainly part of a, uh, the makeup of someone who's going to do well on the crew. And as I say, we, Definitely see in goats. There are very different types of humor, and I wonder if that's 
sort of within the range of what you can screen for. I mean, the sarcastic humor versus you know, camaraderie humor. I mean, they're they're quite different beasts. Is that something you can sort of sense from a personality profile? You know, those uh, distinctions tend to come out in other areas of the personality profile as well. Like people who are very, who use a lot of sarcastic humor. They have an edge. They have an edge and that edge shows up in other places. How much have you been consulted or your research been consulted during this COVID-19 pandemic isolation time? Quite a lot. There was a, a phase uh, a couple weeks into it where I, I got a lot of calls uh, from journalists wanting my secrets of space exploration as applied to human isolation. What, um, what did you tell them? What did you tell us? I, I Basically the same stuff I was telling you guys earlier, you know, uh, give yourself a break, uh, make these uh, coping strategies part of your to-do list, be aware of microstimuli, recognize that they just, they happen. Um, it just, it, a lot of that sort of forewarned is forearmed stuff. It seems to me microstimuli can't they work both ways? Can some microstimuli be good? So there's a researcher at the University of British Columbia who his specialty is in the positives of human space exploration. So we talk a lot about how, you know, the dangers are stressful and being stuck in with a small group of people is stressful and all that. A lot of focus on the but negatives. If, if you like Tang, you are, in, this is it. And also you're, you're exploring space. That from makes up for loud. a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, so our crews don't get to do that, but they get a lot of positive from feeling they're making a real contribution to human space exploration. And that does make up for a lot of the stressors. And I think, so think going back to COVID-19, if you can try to pivot to that, you know, oh, I'm stuck at home. I'm doing something for humanity by staying at home. This is this is a meaningful effort, even though it doesn't really feel like it right now. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I mean, Bill's question about microstimuli. When you have a really good friend or when you're in love, you're in a, a really intense relationship. And I think like the way she flips her hair, just, you know, it's just the most charming thing. There, There is a way in which, you know, when you're in the cer a certain mindset, microstimuli can be the most charming, beautiful, wonderful things. So if there is some way to, you know, to enlist them, to make them into positives for the mission... I mean, that seems like that could be a really powerful thing. Well, exactly. And even just really trying to remember, even if it's the hair flipping has come to irritate you a lot now that you're stuck in with this person all the time, to try to remember how charming it was a few months ago. <laughs> you know, there, everybody loves to talk right now about mindfulness, like paying attention to how you're feeling. Mm. Is, uh, is that part of it? Put a checklist item, I'm going to pay attention to something positive today. Absolutely. Yes. So I have a dog. Mm -hmm. uh, he is the best dog in the world. In and the world. I take him for a walk at least three times a day because he has to, you know, relieve himself. Um, but I put take the dog for the walk times three on my list every day and I cross it off, even though I'm not going to forget. Uh, it's just it's it's part of my mental health routine as much as it is my relieving his bladder routine to get out, look around think about things. Has anybody talked about taking a pet on a space mission or feeling that uh, an AI that could act like a pet? Is that a useful way you could use AI? We actually did a study on that at high seas. Uh, we, uh, we had a, a set of robotic pets for one of the crews and, it, you know, these little sort of fluffy robots uh, where you have to kind of pet them and feed them and so on. One of them looked a bit like a cat. Other was sort of a purple alien type thing. But these are handheld. Yeah, they're sort of football size, and they trundle around on the floor and make silly noises. And what we found, generally speaking, was that people who had grown up with pets really liked them, and people who had not grown up with pets really hated them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that included the commander of this mission, who at one point was accused of kicking the thing. <laughs> he insists that he tripped over it, but... Because he's not used to having pets around. Right, and doesn't see the benefit of them. He just didn't didn't care for these beasts at all. But other people really like them, so it's a possibility. Something else on that topic, um, at one point there was a, I think it was a Japanese research team that was proposing that the best animals to bring on a long-duration space mission would be miniature goats. 
I can see that uh, Goats in Space would, if nothing else, be very effective as a social media campaign. It would be so entertaining. Can you imagine them just kind of pinging off the walls? Oh, the the goat cam? Goat, goat cam is going to have, cam. what, 100 million followers? Exactly. <laughs> Talking about humans and our proclivities and what happens to us, we have, I think, a a charming voicemail. I'm going to go with charming, Corey. Let's roll that digital recording. I was wondering if, assuming in the far future we establish permanent and self-sustaining civilizations on other planets, the environmental differences of those planets would, over thousands of years, lead to slightly different humans with measurable biological differences. And if that could happen, is there a possibility that these humans could rebel against the humans on Earth and declare independence, not unlike the colonizers of the New World in America, to the British? Thank you. The basis of pretty much every space opera uh, that has ever been written, uh, it's a classic. Here's the problem. One is uh, resources. So when Europeans came to North America, they found a continent that was full of resources uh, and really had not much of a problem cutting ties in terms of dependence on the old world for for resources. That's going to be really hard on other planets, um, which is one of the reasons, of course, why terraforming is a topic that comes up a lot. Uh, you know, could we turn other planets into places which which would be independent uh, in terms of resources from the home world? So that's a biggie. Another, of course, is the speed of travel. Um, you you can't have a good war uh, if everyone's taking a year to get to each other. And space is big, easy to avoid each other. So I say all the time, these people that want to go live on Mars, you guys, there's no salmon swimming up the Sacramento River. You know, this is like, there's not protein everywhere. There's not even anything to drink. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's tough. It's really hard to build a, an ecosystem or a set of ecosystems that, that work with each other. This is why um, one, one of the big lessons, I think, of space exploration is how important uh, Earth is, uh, because uh, it's going to be very hard to come up to with a planet B. Earth. Yeah. Now, speaking of Earth and features of Earth, Corey. The crackling of electricity, the thunderous boom of lightning, which tells me that it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round. Kim, do you have a favorite pun? Uh, yes, but it's really long. <laughs> how long can a pun be? Bring it. It's a, it's a shaggy dog story, but how about I just give you the punchline? Sure. Red tarmac says to blue tarmac, oh man, I'm not getting in with him. He's a total psychopath. He's a psychopath. He's a psychopath. See that? See that? Yes. Okay, yes. Okay. I think I can reverse engineer that joke. Yeah. (laughs) For your traffic paint buffs. Do you have a favorite scientific acronym? Uh, Yes. I like the ones, the acronyms that have acronyms in them. Nested. The nested nested acronyms, yes. Yes, I love them. So CAVE. I can't remember the whole thing for CAVE, but the C in CAVE is CAVE. Uh, cave, something augmented virtual experience or something. Yeah, yes, okay. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the NAC, the NASA Advisory Council, but the N is NASA, NASA North yes. National Aeronautics. <laughs> Love those. Okay, if you could pick one person, real or fictional, living or dead, to be stuck, to be trapped in high seas with, who would it be? Lightning round. So the first thing that comes to the top of my head is Jim Henson, because I think he could you could build a whole world. Would you go to Mars if it were a one way trip? That's a uh, short answer, yes. Slightly longer answer that depends on what I thought my life expectancy would be. Uh How about now? Now my life expectancy would be about five minutes, so no. Uh, But if... (laughs) So, okay, I'm 50. So say my current life expectancy now is to live for another 40 years. Uh, If going to Mars cut that in half, expectancy-wise, I'd go. If it cut Uh, it down to six months, I would not go. Is there something misunderstood about your research? Yeah, I think a lot of people think it's like a reality TV show that, you know, we're filming all the time, uh, that people are constantly screaming, throwing things at each other, um, having sex in the shower, all of that stuff. Um, Mostly our crews are pretty well behaved. Mostly. Mostly. Thank you. That'll be, we'll call that the lightning round. Now we're in the, the weather has passed and it's sunny day. If you were queen of the forest, if you were running the show, is there something you would do? Is there something you want the world to know about your research? 
I would really like to extend um, my analog, extend high seas, so that it has a submarine component as well. So you would have the submarine part be simulating the uh, en route to Mars and back from Mars elements, and then you would have high seas itself for the surface exploration part to simulate the entire mission. And so for that, you just need funding. Just funding. All right. Hey, voters and taxpayers, get on that. That's easy. So do you have another mission planned or we're between missions, as we like to say? Right now, we're dealing with the many operational years worth of data that we have, which is not as glamorous as running a mission, but it's the important part, right? It's where we squeeze out the actual results. How many people Uh, are there squeezing? Right now, me? (laughs) No, that's not really fair. We've had all of our sub teams uh, have been working on their results for a long time. I'm the one who kind of needs to synthesize it. What's a sub team? Uh, So, you know, I mentioned the MSU study. Uh, We've got uh, NASA teams. We've got uh, several other universities. They all sort of worked on their individual projects. And then I take the data from all of those and put them together. And where will we read your research? You publish it? Are you going to write a book? Uh, Well, there's a bunch of journal papers coming out. Uh, We post them on our website, highseas.org. You can see them there. So take a look, everybody. Go to highseas.org and you can find out what makes people crazy on (laughs) long-duration space missions and what makes them happy. And how to be resilient. Yes, and we could all learn a little bit about resilience, doggone it. This is fantastic. Yes, we could. Yes, we could. Our guest today has been Dr. Kim Binstead. She is Professor of Information Computer Science at the University of Hawaii. Remember, when it comes to pushing the boundaries of space exploration, science Science rules. rules. If you like science rules, and of course I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. Helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us know what you want to hear about. So be sure to look at my socials for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and this very same Corey S. Powell. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science Science Rules. Rules. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.